Welcome to the Scandinavian Mind podcast, our weekly show about the intersection of lifestyle and technology. Today on the program, a special report from the Women in Science Prize. This week, we visited the L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science Sweden Prize, an award organized with the support of the Young Academy of Sweden that aims to highlight promising women in the early stages of their research career. We spoke to three of the leading participating scientists, uh, and let's say my colleague Yuan Magnusson spoke to them. My name is Conrad Olsson, Editor-in-Chief and Founder of Scandinavian Mind, and I'm here now with Yuan. Uh, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, and this week I'm also our new scientific reporter. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And as people can hear, I'm a bit under the weather. I'm com- coming down with a cold here, uh, so I'm going to let you kind of run the show, and I love this. It's a bit of a new format for us, uh, trying to kind of be the reporters on the ground at, at, at interesting events that we uh, attend. And you were at, it was the International Women's Day um, that this took place. Uh, can you just describe the event for us, Yuan? Yeah, so um, it's, a, uh, as you mentioned, it's a cooperation between uh, L'Oreal and uh, UNESCO, and they are the initiators. And uh, they arranged this across the world, and they've done so since 1998. And uh, for the Swedish uh, sort of edition, uh, they're supported by the Young Academy of Sweden. And uh, yeah, the reason is quite obvious. Um, it's more difficult for women becoming a professor than men. And um, we still see a lot of inequality uh, in the world of science, in the academical world. And are, and, are there uh, numbers yeah. around that? Yeah, so... Um, uh, I don't know specific specific numbers regarding uh, whether uh, how, how more difficult it is, but uh, the event has supported um, like four thousand one hundred alumni around the world, mm. and um, yeah, five of them have later won the Nobel Prize. So if we just look at the Nobel Prize in, for instance, chemistry, uh, we've had um, I think it was one hundred and ninety men and eight women. So right. I think that says uh, quite something. And uh, the latest Nobel Prize uh, from last year, we had uh, two out of uh, 20, I think, who were women. I was going to say that these events are needed um, yeah. and this, this issue needs to be highlighted. Yeah, and the event also highlighted the importance of, uh, of course, uh, female role models and that a lot of the in- inequality is due to old structures, which might be uh, hard to change, difficult to change. But it also highlighted, highlighted the fact that this is not something, it's, it's not the women's fault. It's, uh, it's not the women uh, who are the reason behind uh, this inequality. So I think mm. that was important to highlight. And also, uh, one of the, we saw a panel talk on stage, and one of the participants, uh, her name is Erika Jonsson. She's a professor in Genius and Society. And she mentioned quite an interesting thing that uh, for recruitment, it's also a lot of inequality. And if we, if you and I, if we, if we look at uh, when we're about to rec- recruit a new team member or so, we, we tend to look at uh, someone who's quite similar to ourselves, right? And uh, her advice was to ask for two uh, tips when uh, searching in her network. And if we, if if you get if if you're looking for uh, uh, to 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 hire a new uh, team member and you ask for two tips, then uh, most likely uh, you will end up with one who's similar to yourself, 
and uh, one who might not be, uh, yeah, just like you. So I think that was quite a good advice. All right. And speaking about the panel, you actually had a chance to interview one of the panelists after uh, the event, uh, Nina Worms, a professor of history of technology at the Royal Institute of Technology. Okay, a lot of technology there. Um, and uh, here's what Nina had to say. So tell us about your research. So I'm an historian. Uh, I've been looking at uh, changes in the media system historically, um, taking some interest in digitalization. It borders to AI and the way in which we have placed hopes and fears into technological change, uh, information technology, digitalization, and now AI. Um, but recently I've been more and more interested in uh, the history of environment and, and climate change. And I'm now absorbed by um, research where I, uh, together with a rhetorician, look at the thought structures of our legitimizations of not acting in the climate realm. So if you want to, to lead a sustainable life, you still might find yourself doing things that go against your information or even your intention. And when you do that, it's uncomfortable. So you need to find ways of rationalizing that. And we've analyzed those ways in which people rationalize and legitimize and, and argue. And how have you done that? We've done it through surveys. Uh, so this is qualitative work. We don't claim to be able to say anything about a nation or a particular group or a sex. We're interested in the spectrum of possible ways to argue, but we could still see that certain ways of arguing are more common than others. So we do this by analyzing the text that people wrote to us uh, when we ask them. And um, how long has the project been running? And uh, have you seen any results yet or yeah, come up with any conclusions? We've had several uh, projects actually. And the first one we've seen uh, some really interesting uh, results. It turns out that a very common way of arguing when you do something that you didn't intend to do is to, to have an e economic budget or transactional thinking, right? So you argue that since I recycle and bike to work, I can fly, which is a, is a comparison that sort of implodes as soon as you understand the, uh, the size of these different things, right? But this is still a way that people can reason because the currency is actually not emissions, but good and bad deeds. So that's a, a very tangible and uh, revealing result. And our thinking is that when people realize these things and when they, when they spot their own reasoning and it falls apart, then that's a, a way towards um, a more sustainable discussion and towards a change in behavior, which we need if we're gonna meet the Paris Agreement. Yeah, will you also uh, come up with potential solutions on uh, yeah, how we as a society can uh, yeah, sort of improve uh, this situation or people's behavior? Or will you only collect the, the survey results? And, uh... Well, I think we found, in some of these arguments, we found uh, great potential for, for how to engage with people's knowledge. Uh, so we, we, for example, know a bit more what is uh, helping 
change, right? We also looked at what, people who stopped flying for climate reasons. We we discovered that they had um, they displayed um, their answers showed that knowledge is in fact really important, but a particular kind of knowledge. And this goes against some of the research that uh, keeps saying that um, knowledge is, doesn't help. Right. So here we can contribute to a different. Um, different way of communicating climate change. And do you know when we can take part of any results? Oh, we've published several articles already. Yeah? Yeah. And, and where are they available? Uh, they're open access, all of them. And uh, my colleague, Maria volrat she's all over the place talking about this. So some of it is reached uh, media as well. And now you get to talk about it as well. Ah, now yes. I get to talk about it. On stage it well. and in the podcast, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That was Nina Worms. Let's get into some of the prize winners here. You had a chance to speak to Beatrice Villaurel. Maybe I pronounced it wrong. Villaurel, yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. She was um, uh, she was awarded the prize two years ago, um, and you had a chance to speak to her as well. Maybe you should describe the Beatrice a little bit more. Yeah, and also not only did she win uh, two years ago, but she also, of course, made it to the global final, uh, where she last year uh, was announced rising star. So quite a bright uh, future for her. She's an astronomer. Uh, she works at the Nordita here in Stockholm. And Nordita is an institute, uh, and she leads a project, and it's called the VASCO Project. And VASCO mm. stands for Vanishing and Appearing Sources During a Century of Observations. So she's <laughs> looking for astronomical objects uh, that may have um, vanished from our sky or other type of unusual things that you can find on the sky. And uh, the aim, it's a global project, and the aim is to find things that nobody knew about or signatures of extraterrestrial intelligence. Good stuff. Let's get into it. Here's Beatrice Villaroel. Tell us more, what do you do? So, uh, NORDITA stands for Nordic Institute for Theoretical Physics, and it's an institute held by Stockholm University and KTH. Uh, so Which is the Royal Institute of Technology. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, I'm there. And, um, but the Vasco project is very international, so we work with um, many scientists uh, from four different continents. Australia is not included, <laughs> uh, simply by chance. Uh, because there is simply no collaborator from Australia right now at the moment, but I hope we will have some. Um, so it's a global cooperation. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we um, well, we do our research, and now we have moved slightly into a new domain because things develop quite fast in science. Also, like when we do our research, and we're going to be moving uh, uh, into the area of searching for. Uh, extraterrestrial intelligence closer to our Earth. We usually, most uh, searches for extraterrestrial intelligence have been done in, with the radio telescopes. And then what people have been doing is that they search uh, for radio signals from a different star. They, uh, well, they look quite far away. And right now they have been looking for, effectively 300,000 objects have been surveyed and one has found nothing. And then, but already in the 1960s, people knew, or Carl Sagan and others proposed that, okay, radio is one way of searching for life, but another way is to search for things that uh, 
let's say, if you have an extraterrestrial exploratory spacecraft that comes to our solar system, or it, that ET would send some kind of artifacts, that is the second route to look for them. The thing is that it's extremely difficult to do it. Um, because you need usually some uh, like billion dollar space missions, so that's why people didn't do it so far. Um, but now we have like new technology and new techniques, and I think we are in a mature point to do these searches in, in rather inexpensive ways. Yeah, because it's also a matter of funding, of course. Yes. Uh, is this controversial, this area within your type of science, or can you get funding? It is controversial. Uh, it is very difficult to get funding. Uh, our hope lies with philanthropists. Mm. So and uh, what are the hopes uh, for the project? Are you optimistic? I'm super optimistic. I wouldn't do that otherwise. I, I, I look at our, like, at our humanity. Humans have managed to like, build Voyager 1 and Pioneer, and Voyager 1 left our solar system in 2012. It's more than 10 years ago when it left the solar system. So if it's going to be traveling towards uh, another star, let's say if it, it, it could actually reach it in less than 100,000 years as far as the closest star. I mean, there, it could reach a distance of the closest star in something like 77,000 years. And if we can do that, why wouldn't another civilization be able to send something to us? It's a very simple thing. And you have 40 billion of Earth-like planets just in our own Milky Way galaxy. So we have... I'm going to say that there are all reasons to believe that this, is, this can pay off. And if we're talking about life in space, what's the most uh, likely sort of version of this uh, life? Well, it's most likely it's going to be primitive life, I'm going to, to guess. But uh, it doesn't mean that there can't be plenty of uh, intelligent civilizations out there. And what would you, if you would count the odds, what would you say about the odds for life in space? It's not possible to make, to, to guess anything right now because we don't have the information to build the statistics. But I would say that since we already have found asteroids with 80 different types of amino acids, which are the basic building blocks of uh, proteins, why wouldn't these, I mean, we even found like basic building blocks of the DNA molecules. So I'm going to guess that that's, the basic building blocks of life are everywhere. All right, that was Beatrice Villaruel. I love it when we can get some space here on the podcast. We, we've been having t t not enough space talk on the podcast, perhaps. Uh, it's, it's a kind of a, um, a guilty pleasure of mine. Um, but so, so maybe I should restrain myself. But thank you so much for doing that interview. Now let's get on to the kind of the highlight of the uh, event. Uh, this year's prize winner, uh, you had a chance to speak to her, very interesting person um, working with data and AI, uh, Kathleen Kohn. Can you describe Kathleen for us before we get into the interview? Kathleen, she's originally from uh, Germany and uh, she works uh, a lot with uh, 3D and AI and uh, how 3D and creating 3D models uh, can help um, uh, for sustainability and also uh, how her science can make AI more understandable. Wonderful, exciting stuff. So here now, Kathleen Kohn from the Women in Science Prize in Stockholm the other day. And uh, tell us more about this uh, research. What do you study? So I am a mathematician 
um, but I do work interdisciplinary with engineers, uh, mostly computer vision engineers on technology where you aim to um, reconstruct 3D models of an object um, from pictures. And uh, yeah, to be more specific, how do you do it? How do I do it? <laughs> um, Maybe let me actually try to answer a slightly different question that has something to do with how technology goes together with life um, and why this is relevant. You might imagine that you, uh, if you want to buy a new dress or a new suit, um, in like the future, you will be able to do this first in, in an augmented reality world by taking lots of pictures of you and you get a 3D model of you and then you can try on the virtual dress and you can see if this, uh, you like the design generally on you or if you don't and how the cloth looks and so on. And so this will help uh, to lower production costs, for instance, and be a part of a sustainable uh, life. But this is like, I now talked about the end product, which is typically what uh, you see as a customer. Uh, but I am really on the far back end. I am the mathematician who tries to understand the core of the problem, what is challenging about it, what is easy. Um, so we're just not producing anything, we're just finding the theory that helps the engineers. And so I'm happy to receive this prize because very often we do not get this visibility, you know. You have all your smartphones and there's lots of math inside, but no one thinks about the mathematicians. Yes. When I read about your research before, uh, I also read about what you just described, like 3D also in fashion. Right. And, uh, yeah, the AR world that you mentioned. Super curious, can you, can you tell us more how, how it will work? I mean... And also the road there, how, how far away is it? Um, so I don't think that we are very far away from some technology, but it's always the question how good the technology is like, and how satisfied, how smooth you will be as a customer. Uh, so I think until this is really like a smooth technology, which is available to everyone and is very, very good quality, it is going to take us still many years. Um, I also want to point out it's not just like fashion specific. So as the mathematician, I'm thinking of the problem always as like the abstract problem that will solve many problems. So it doesn't have to be specifically 3D models of human bodies to put on clothes. It could also be uh, we could take, use our smartphone and want to take a lot of pictures of this room we're sitting in to get a 3D model of the room and then change its furniture or change the tapestry and so on. Yeah, because we already have uh, the VR tools for architects to imagine a room or even design a room. Yeah. Right. And we will see similar initiatives, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this technology already exists to a large extent, but it has its boundaries. And my job as a mathematician is trying to understand what these boundaries are. Is this a technological problem and we just need to develop better technology? Or is this actually that part of the problem is so hard that no matter what technology we develop, we will exactly get to solve it and then we need to find other creative workarounds. And what do you think is the answer to that question? I think a little bit of both, <laughs> yes. And so my job is to pinpoint uh, what exactly it is, but we're not done. <laughs> 
and uh, will you ever be? How, how long is the research project, this, this current one, or has it already finished? Or? So I think, I, mean, I am hoping that what we are currently working on together with uh, engineers is something uh, that can be finished within a few amount of years, say up to five, I hope. Um, and then it would feel to me then then I have done my job as a mathematician and uh, then the rest is up to the engineers in some sense. But the mathematical tools that uh, I develop and the people that work in my group develop are not just uh, for the specific purpose of 3D reconstruction. We also develop tools to maybe make artificial intelligence systems more explainable in general. And that, I think, is a very long-term <laughs> yeah, you, you also mentioned that uh, on stage to, to make AI more explainable. Can, can, you, can you explain how to make it more explainable? Right, I think the issue at the moment with artificial intelligence is that we do not have a very good theoretical understanding of it. So, but we are already using it in self-driving cars or maybe banks even use it. Some banks use it to decide if a certain person should get a loan or not. But if you make these sort of decisions, not by humans anymore, that follow a rule book, but you let an AI do the decision, then maybe you want to know why a certain decision was taken. And at the moment, we do not have that. And there's many, many researchers in the world that try to push for explainable artificial intelligence. And there's many approaches on how to get this done. Uh, and so what I think I can uh, help with is trying to understand the theory of artificial intelligence systems. And if we really understand them, then we should also be able to understand why they took a certain uh, course. And you mentioned before, or also, yeah, on stage, uh, that it, this is also, your research is also a matter of sustainability. Is that uh, what you mentioned before, that it may reduce uh, overproduction and such, or, yeah? Yeah, I think it, I mean, as I'm, as again, since I'm a mathematician, I am working just in the background on like whatever technology, and I mean, sustainability can also mean uh, reduction of transport costs. Um, I mean, if we have self-driving cars, then we don't have, uh, or other self-driving vehicles doesn't even have to be cars. They can be more environmentally friendly, like maybe they don't have to carry humans. And uh, yeah, I think it can be applied to too to many things. And I think it's very hard to foresee at the moment what artificial intelligence will be capable of. Like, even I cannot <laughs> anticipate that. So. And uh, lastly, this uh, research project, um, do you think it will end up uh, going to market as a startup or will it remain in the scientific world? Or? So I don't think that I will personally push this to become a startup because it is not exactly my cup of tea. Like I never really wanted to be like an entrepreneur, I think. I'm really the curious academic. No, but perhaps academic. your uh, research colleagues. Right, so I have a research colleague who is one of the most famous computer vision engineers in Europe that I'm working a lot with. He's in Prague at the Technical University and lots of people in his group have started startups to uh, get some parts of these products onto the market either in parallel to their academic careers or they would finish their PhD degree and then do that so there is certainly a possibility for that. Yeah because it's 
obviously huge uh, potential for 3D solutions and uh, exactly yeah. All right, that was Kathleen Kohn, winner of this year's uh, L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science Sweden Prize. Johan, thank you so much for being our man on the ground and reporting from, from this. I hope you all enjoyed uh, these conversations. Okay, Johan, what was your kind of takeaway from, from this evening? Yeah, so um, a lot of good energy, uh, a lot of talent, of course. Uh, I felt quite stupid to be frank, when I was in the room because there was a lot of smart people there. And also, mm. uh, we had the two recipients. Uh, we interviewed Kathleen and we ha also had a, uh, another um, recipient. Uh, her name is Audrey Campo. She's originally from Canada. And what I found quite interesting was also that uh, they both, because uh, Kathleen is from Germany and Audrey, as mentioned, is from Canada. And um, during their speech, they both uh, actually thanked um, Sweden for being um, such a good country to be in as a scientist and also uh, in terms of equality. Kathleen, for instance, uh, she can combine, and also Audrey, they can combine uh, uh, living here with her family and uh, their professional life in the academic world. So, um, yeah. Also a shout out to Sweden and how far we've come uh, as a country, but also how... Yeah, it's so much still to work on. Good stuff. Sweden is a testbed for scientists. I love it. Uh, thank you, Yuan. Uh, thank you all for listening. This has been the Scandinavian Mind podcast. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter. Visit scandinaviamind.com slash newsletter. We are in the thick of it working uh, on our next print issue of Scandinavian Mind right now. There will be announcement coming out uh, with regards to the launch of that. It's going to be uh, mid-end of April, as it looks right now. Uh, super excited about that. I can't wait. I uh, just want to plug that. So don't forget to sign up for our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn or, or Instagram or your preferred platform. And we'll let you know. Uh, until next time, goodbye.